You are listening to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. We have two guests today, Emily Nonko and Rasan Thomas. Together, they founded a nonprofit called Empowerment Avenue. The mission of this organization is to assist talented writers and artists in prison gain access to mainstream outlets so the world can read and see their creative work. The group has expanded into creating documentaries featuring formerly incarcerated people as well as those currently in prison. Emily is a journalist and director of Writing for Liberation, a visit to San Quentin Prison in California six years ago changed the direction of her career. Rasan is best known for his work on the podcast Ear Hustle, a very popular podcast, if I do say so myself, which was a Pulitzer Prize finalist and winner of the DuPont Award. He co-produced and co-hosted Ear Hustle from inside San Quentin. He is also a writer and filmmaker. He's been paroled from San Quentin as of February 2023. It's so great to have you both on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. All right. So my first question is to you, Emily. What is it that drew you to journalism in the first place? Well, I've always been a writer all my life, and journalism was the one way I felt I could realistically make a living as a writer. So I went to journalism school. I loved it. I was reporting in New York, and that was the first part of my career. I transitioned into freelance writing, and I've been doing that for the past decade, and it sort of laid the groundwork for the work I do today and supporting folks who are incarcerated starting their own freelance writing careers. And my other question to you is, I mentioned in my introduction that you visited San Quentin and that that visit really shifted and changed a lot of things in your your life and your worldview, I guess you could say. So tell us a little bit about that visit to San Quentin. Sure. I mean, to provide some context, I grew up in the suburbs of Colorado, very privileged in a mostly white community. And I was really, I think, protected by the worst of our criminal justice system. And, you know, there's this really deep belief if you grow up in those communities that things are somehow working and are protecting you. And as a liberal person, I didn't realize how deep those assumptions were, even with the knowledge that mass incarceration is wrong. So I got invited to San Quentin kind of on a whim. I had never been into a prison before. I, I hadn't really covered criminal justice in my own reporting career. My friend was volunteering at San Quentin. And at that point, they were running a breast cancer walk once a year. So I got invited in and my friend was basically like, get on a plane, fly to California, just trust me. And so I did. And it was a really unique first experience now that I've had a lot of experience going into prisons. You went into the prison, you walked on the yard, you met people who were incarcerated immediately, and then you spend hours walking the yard with incarcerated folks, just talking, getting to know people. Uh, I had just never had an experience like that. 
And within the first 10, 15 minutes of that experience, it was that immediate, like, oh my God, what I thought that prisons were, like who is in prisons, everything really felt deeply challenged in a way that made me really deconstruct how I had these assumptions about people inside. And I think the most powerful moment is at the end of the day, after you've connected and bonded with people, you get to leave and then they go back to a cage. And that was something I knew I could never continue living my life as I had with with that knowledge and that feeling. So that was really the, the beginnings of this for my personal journey. What a great story. I visited San Quentin probably a dozen years ago. I know Jody Lewin, who was on the podcast, who started the Prison University Project, and that's the way we got in. And it was also life-changing. We sat in on some of the classes, and uh, it, was, it was just remarkable. So I can understand you know, your first exposure to, to prison. So Rasan, from your perspective, I wanted you to tell us a little bit before we get into Empowerment Avenue about Ear Hustle and how that began. It began without me. (laughs) (laughs) It started with Antoine Williams, Earlon Woods, and Nigel Poor. Nigel Poor was a volunteer at the Mm -hmm. prison. And she had been, she came in through PUP, through the Prison University Project at the time, to teach a class. And she met Troy Williams. And he's like, we're doing this audio journalism over here. Would you be interested in helping facilitate that? And so she came over there. She met Erlon Woods. They, they worked closely together. And at some point, they wanted to do something different than what they were doing with KLW. Uh, they wanted to do just stories, not so much focus on any journalism aspect, just tell people stories in that kind of format and just put it on an institutional mm-hmm. channel. But Nigel saw an opportunity to join into this pod quest contest that Radiotopia was putting out, looking for the best podcast in the world. And she asked for permission from the public information officer at the time, who was Lieutenant Sam Robinson, now retired Captain Robinson. And he said yes, thinking that oh, it's not going to win anything. And, you know, go ahead. And we made the top 10, then the top four. And at this point, I'm working next door at San Quentin News, and I'm covering the story for the newspaper, so I'm tracking it and rooting for them. But I'm thinking there is no, tr- there is no top four. Like, we're just some token thing they added to the top three. But next thing I knew, uh, it was number one. And all of a sudden, Earlon especially had to figure out how to make a podcast, which is something they've even heard before from his prison cell. It came out after he was long incarcerated. And this podcast did amazing. I remember thinking, I remember hearing that a head from Radiotopia came in and said, and if this podcast does 50,000 downloads, that'd be great. And Erlon said, we're going to do a million. And now that first episode, Sellies, is well over two, nearly three, or maybe even over three million by now uh, downloads. The wow. podcast overall has over 90 million downloads. It just finished season 12. It started season 13. And I got involved wow. when Erlon, the commutation was in the air. He was um, up for commutation. It was going through the final stages because a lot of steps. So at, at, once you reach a certain point in the commutation process, you know you're getting it. You have to wait for it to happen. And so at this point, they started looking at it, looking for a new co-host to, for the inside. And after a rigorous interview and tryout process, uh, including doing pitches and sample audio stuff, I got the job. And season four is when I de- debuted. The pandemic hit season five, and that changed the dynamic of Ear Hustle. 
because we were focused more on inside stories. And Erline would do stories that would pick up on, on guys on parole. And sometimes we would do stories that both. I'd talk to the guy on the inside and Erline be at the gate waiting for him. But when COVID hit, it pushed the stories outside. And it kind of helped us. It expanded their hustle to now we go to other prisons. They're trying to get into New York. I try to go to prisons in other states now. Um, and their hustle's really just expanded. And now that I'm out, I no longer want to go back inside to be a host. So I'm, I'm a producer with the show. All right. Ear hustle. Why do you think it caught on so much? And is it heard in prisons across the country? I think it caught on so much because it's our side of the story. I think for decades, whenever you watch TV, everything's a a cop show. Everything's a cop show. (laughs) And cops kind of justify their gangster, justify being corrupt, all kinds of stuff. Because this they got to do. They got to be tough on crime. Um, We got to deal with these monsters out there. I think the public was starting to wake up and understand that people in prison are not necessarily evil. Most of us are just traumatized. Most of us were denied opportunities. And when you're denied opportunities and you're poor, certain things become like survival mode, apocalypse type atmospheres. And when you're in apocalypse, there's different rules apply. I think the public is just hungry to hear the other side of the story. And they're surprised to find out we're just human beings. It shouldn't be, but I think they are. And then the second part of your question again was? Was, is it heard in prisons across the nation? Yes, through companies like Evo. Um, it's on tablets. And so it's in prisons all over the country. Almost any prison has a tablet that uses Evo, in, in Devo. And it's also like played in the prison system in England. And so it's not just heard in, in, in prisons across the country. Gee. It's heard in prisons around the world. I believe also New Zealand. Um, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure they've heard at least a few episodes in Norway. I'll add that for some folks that we support that don't have tablets or access to the podcast, they'll get transcripts. And so people are inside Mm. are reading transcripts of the podcast. So I get feedback from folks in our broader community. Oh, I love the latest issue. Like Rasan's doing a great job, all this stuff. That's (laughs) been really cool to, to see that resonate throughout our community. Yeah, we actually had a guy who was incarcerated in, I believe, China, and his mom was sending him transcripts. That's amazing. So a question for you, Rasan. why is creative expression so important to people doing time? Yeah, it's healing. And there's an old expression, if you give me no voice, you give me no choice, right? And so <laughs> not being heard is one of the most dangerous things in the world. And so when ignoring somebody, it's just not helpful. Let me give you an example, a great example. Sure. Um, they created what they call a 602 process, a grieving process, right? It became a thing, I think, after the Attica riots and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so this grieving process, and when you're in prison, allows you to file a complaint against something a CO done or something you feel an unjust policy. And you get this complaint heard. And let me tell you something. 90% of the time, they deny it. <laughs> and when they do grant it, they grant it in a, in a way that's kind of a joke. Like you get what you ask for in a way that backfires. For example, we complain it that we were getting four pieces of bread, but not enough jelly to make two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And so we won that. And they took away two pieces of bread. <laughs> but since they have this grievance process, violence against COs went down dramatically. Back in the days when there was no grievance process, people would attack guards. And sometimes guards would have one-on-one fights with incarcerated people. This is how they settled grievances back in the days. Because there was no other process. There was no expression for our voice. And so the grievance process, even though it fails us 90% of the time, 
just the fact that somebody hears us reduces violence, right? And so it's just very important to be heard. It's so healing. It, it's just very important to be heard. I'm, I'm, in fact, there's many times when I confront somebody about something I don't like that they did. They don't necessarily change, but I feel better because I said it to their face. You know what I mean? It right. just does something magical. Right. right. So speaking of San Quentin, they have some very unique programs that really sets it apart from many, many other prisons. Can you tell us just a little bit about what what programs they offer? Oh, my God. They offer over 80 programs. It's, it's ridiculous Do how they? many programs they offer. I mean, you can, you, you can learn coding. You can learn how to build in maintenance. You can learn plumbing. You can learn media, all aspects of it, audio, journalism, video. But the most important thing is you can heal. I mean, there's a college on the compound and all that. And the magic to San Quentin is not the groups. I mean, you can put a group anywhere. You can do a group on the tablet, possibly. You can do it through reading a book. The magic of San Quentin is inclusion. Because for most most of my life, I felt excluded from mainstream society. And so I didn't participate in mainstream society. I, I, I grew up in a subculture. But that subculture is created by the exclusion, by white flight, by feeling like, you know, you don't have parents, or you're not getting loved by society or loved by your family, so you find it in a gang. And so the magic of San Quentin is they allow people to come for the breast cancer walk. They allow like thousands of volunteers to be volunteers at that prison. And so that's what's amazing about it. I mean, the Golden State Warriors come there to hang out every year. It's, it's freaking fantastic. The 49ers come every year now and bring in Christmas presents and, and hanging out with, with people in the visiting room, with their families, with a catered meal. And so that feeling like you're included in society is freaking magic. And people don't talk about that. We talk about poverty and trauma, but exclusion is a root cause of crime as well. Yeah, that's great. I, I had no idea that they offered as much as they did. And, and the idea is not just, as you say, the programs, but they're welcome to come in. Yeah. Um, and that, that is not often the case. Not yeah. often the case. And then San Quentin has a huge advantage. You can get off work at five and be at the prison at six. Really? Yeah, but if 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 the prison was three hours away and you tried yeah. to drive there after work, by the time you get there, it's lockdown time for the night. Right. right. And so yeah. San Quentin is blessed to be surrounded by a bunch of Bay Area cities by a whole. But I don't even know how many. I think the Bay Area is like I don't know how many. It's a ridiculous amount of cities make up the Bay Area. So it's accessible. Yeah, it's very accessible. Be because of that. Yes, yeah, so I don't yeah, think there could be another place like it unless they have that level yeah. of access. That's the yeah. tough part. Yeah. Trying to recreate that starts with location. It does. So, Emily, were you aware of the creative talent that was hiding in plain sight in our correctional facilities? And you now seek out that talent so you can promote individuals at Empowerment Avenue. So talk to us about your either lack of awareness or your new awareness of what is actually behind the prison walls. Yeah, I, you know, prior to my first visit in 2018, I didn't have any real depth of knowledge around mm -hmm. around it. And, and my first introduction when I came in was with San Quentin News, where it's like, oh my God, there's a, a newspaper at San Quentin. And so all of a sudden, I'm like meeting all of these journalists on the yard. And so that was really the seed of excitement for me with the journalism. Um, and I think, you know, journalism is, maybe you'll call it art, maybe not, but I think it's a powerful, very powerful means of 
communication and something that's been incredibly stifled inside prison, although the history of prison journalism is very long. It goes back to the invention of American prisons, basically. So that's where it started for me. And, and I think what quickly became apparent and I'm speaking specifically with the journalism, which, you know, we're maybe told, oh, journalists need to go through journalism school and be formerly trained and be in a professional newsroom. The San Quentin News is that, to be sure. But we work with journalists who have none of that. They're, they're self-trained. And we see in the span of a few years, they'll go from writing personal essays to doing investigative reporting. So that's, I think, been most rewarding for me just to see this explosion of talent, really with just a little bit of support provided. You know, it's just that people have the potential. They're just facing a lot of restrictions. They get the right support and then the sky's the limit. Do people in prison reach out to you or you reach out to them to find the talent you're looking for? So when we started this project, I recruited writers, mostly from the Life Inside column at Marshall Project. And we were working with a few writers that we also knew at San Quentin News. We don't have an application process that's open because we just don't have the capacity to take all the interest in. There's a lot of talent inside and just not enough support. And that's heartbreaking. At the same time, I think our strength has been in building very tight-knit communities, being very accountable to all the people that we work with, and not going beyond our capacity and letting things fall through the cracks, which I think is pretty common in organizations that are trying to support people doing creative work inside prison. I would add to that, other organizations try to take on the 2.2 million and it's just overwhelming and it may, it bogs them down. Um, but it's beautiful. Everybody needs to be included as best we can. But the way we do it, we, we prioritize inside leadership. And so to take on 30 writers, mean we have 30 new bosses. <laughs> so <laughs> we can only handle so many bosses at a time. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, Rassan, a question to you. Can you explain the term solutions journalism? Yeah, it just simply means that instead of just telling the story and reporting the facts, you go get the solution as well. You study it and figure out what, what's the answer to this problem that you're writing about and conclude that in the story. How does compensation work for writers and artists that are still incarcerated? This goes to you, Rassan. And in what publications does their work appear? Yeah, compensation depends on what state they're in. Some states oh. don't allow incarcerated people to be paid for their work. And so that way we have to hmm. give the money to their families. But oh, in California, it is legit for them to receive the money. It's just as simple as how they want to receive it. The best number one way is to send it directly to their books in case they owe restitution. They can pay their debt to the state and not, and not have any issues with the state. I um, see. Other than that, I it's see. just, you know, they fill out a W-9 form and we send it where they where, where they tell us to send it. Mm. Uh, really, it, we don't actually pay people in most cases. We facilitate having uh, the publications send it to wherever they want to send it. Uh, and the publications are various, dozens, but among the top, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times. I was in Boston Globe and recently really? Rolling Stone magazine, which I, I want to double check this, but it says that 60 <laughs> million readers worldwide. Jeez, big time, baby. How, how long has Rolling Stone been around, that magazine? Oh, I don't know. Jeez. I don't know either, gotta, but gotta, so gotta. That's, that's amazing. And 
places like Harper's also, or what? What about the New Yorker? Do you know if they're not not us, there? but an incarcerated writer named Joe Garcia hit the New Yorker, which I'm very proud of him. Really, yeah, but he never actually worked with us. Story. Oh, he yeah, I know him. He, we, he's on San Quentin, but like, so one thing I'm really proud about in Palm Avenue is not only do we help people do their thing, but I think we inspired a lot of organizations to start paying incarcerated people and see them as more than just prison writers and get them in bigger and bigger platforms. It's becoming a thing that, which is beautiful because we can't handle but so much. And so the philosophy spreading is more important than just us doing it ourselves. Yeah. We need help. We want to be able to serve the whole two million. We want every writer in prison to have that support. And so uh, I believe um, Joe's true. support came through PJP. Now PJP is mostly focused on publishing people on their platform. But every once in a while, they um, take our standing piece and, and, and get his uh, place somewhere else. And I believe he worked closely with PJP. So they're probably the ones that got him in the New Yorker. Now, what's PJP? The Prison Journalism Project. Oh, oh, yeah. okay. Can you tell us what that is for those who don't yeah, know? Yeah, it's a, it's a, the Prison Journalism Project has a, a platform where they pretty much publish anything you anybody in prison wrote as far as journalism. Hmm. You send it to them and they put it on their website. That's primarily what they do. They weren't paying people at first, and then we had to talk with them like, yo, that's not cool. They pay a little bit, not much. I think last I heard is like 50 bucks, uh, and only to the top, only writers are published on their site. But then I feel where they fit in with us is they teach journalism through the mail, like through tablets. And we don't teach journalism. So I feel like they teach journalism really well. That's where we're weak at. We just kind of pick up the best and give them the support they need to go to the next level. And where they're really weak at is catering to a person's needs as a writer because it's only a handful of them and they're dealing with a whole bunch of people so it's really hard for them to be responsive to the needs of a journalist that's really prolific and that has breaking news and that's where we come in we're very responsive we give you a one-on-one volunteer some writers are so prolific they're surrounded with four volunteers they have a whole support Hmm. system to meet their career needs right and and, and through that kind of support chris blackwell was able to publish 110 stories already and since we launched in June 2020, he's like our top dude. And he's created That's a writing group fantastic. with six other guys who published, I forgot how many, but a ridiculous amount of stories as well already. And they've only been in operation like a year and a half. We give the kind of support to really accelerate people. Uh, for example, without, without Empowerment Avenue, I published eight stories in seven years and I made 400 bucks. With mm-hmm. Emily's help, that jumped to 42 stories in 31 months. And our parole with over 30,000. And so that's what we, mm. we accelerate people's careers. That's impressive. Well, we've come to the end of our time together. And I know you will both come back next time to talk some more about Empowerment Avenue because we really want to get into that. I want people to know about your backgrounds first. And, and uh, next time, let's talk more about the organization that you both have created. So thank you for being here and please join us next time on Pursuing Justice. And before we go, I always like to thank my producer, Jordan Moore at the Pod Cabin and the Innocence Project of Florida that is sponsoring this podcast. Please join us next time. Thank you. Thank you.